You may be seated. Well, the year is 1880 B.C., and Joseph is the prime minister in Egypt. It's four years later that his family, Jacob and family, moved to Egypt, all of about 140 of them or so. It is about 600 years after the Great Pyramids have been built, And it is over 400 years away yet until the exodus occurs. We move ahead to the year 1526 B.C., thereabouts. And there are some one and a half million Hebrew slaves that are living in Egypt in the land of Goshen. Life for the Hebrews has gone from uh, actually quite privileged to not very good, to miserable, to uh, Holocaust-like. And the slaves are there, and the reigning Pharaoh hates their guts. In fact, this Hitler-like Pharaoh of the day is trying to seek to wipe them off the face of the earth by killing all of their newborn baby boys. The, uh, The Nile River... The crocodiles in the Nile have full bellies from little baby boys thrown in there. And when you look at the time scale or frame of progression that we had talked about actually last week, one can sit back and say, God, you are certainly multiplying Abraham's lineage, his seed. You are certainly multiplying that, but... I have to say, there's no land, and I really don't see a nation of priests, and in fact, we pretty much see a whole lot of misery going on. Where in the world is God in all of this misery? Well, turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, you've got some folks that are coming around with a Bible. We really want for you to have a Bible in your hands on your lap for you to be able to follow through with what we're going today. We're going to be covering the first ten verses, and uh, this is cool stuff. You know, people have asked me, how am I doing uh, handling uh, two services, preaching in two services? And last week's I haven't been feeling well, and this week I feel great, but I'm telling you, after this last service, I am just like fried because... This is a cool passage, and I am so excited to be able to add to the fried, um, because this is a big God passage. Let's actually start in the last verse of Exodus chapter 1, so verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, so Pharaoh commanded the Egyptians to do this that every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That's the stage and the setting that's taking place. Chapter 2, verse 1, it's around 1526 B.C. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now, as we look at this, one of the the things we can do is let's take a look back in chapter 1, verse 2. 
In verse 2, we see these individuals listed. These are the children, the male sons from Jacob, uh, from Jacob's lineage. And the first set of sons are from his wife, Rachel. And there's Reuben and Simeon. And then who? Levi. Now, one of the reasons I think that it's noted in here that this man, who later we come and find out in Exodus, his name is Amran, and then marries this woman, whose name later we come and find out is Jochebed. And so you have Amram and Jochebed are married, and they are of the Levi lineage. Now, at the point in time in Exodus chapter 2, that's all that means. In essence, they are in the line of Abraham, and they are from the Levi uh, line. Now, one of the interesting things, I don't know about this, but I'm just kind of uh, making a, a speculation, is that when Moses is writing Genesis, and he's writing Exodus, that Moses looks back, and as he's penning this down on the inspiration of God, he's writing down that his mom and dad were of the Levite lineage. And likely when he wrote this down, he also knew at that point in time that God had selected from the line of Levi would be the priest for the nation. Just just a, a little God you're cool note. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. This was not their only child. They have two other children. They have an older daughter whose name is Miriam, and then there is another son whose name is Aaron. We find out later on that Aaron is three years older than Moses. We don't know how much older Miriam was from Moses. We're going to find out here in a little bit that uh, just for, through some interaction that takes place, I don't think that Miriam was five years old, six years old, seven years old, eight years old. And I'm just basing that off of what's going to happen later on. This is one cool old sister, older sister. I think she's probably around the age of 10, 11, 12, somewhere around that range. But there's this family. And a woman conceived and, and bore a son. This is her third. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. A couple comments. This term fine child is really neat. Here's why. Uh, well, those of you who have children, you have fine child-like kids, right? I just want for you to know, ours are the finest, okay? <laughs> um, but here's what's neat about the word. This word here in the Hebrew is used exactly as it's, uh, the exact form of the word is used six times in Genesis chapter 1 and used once in a different form after those six. Remember Genesis chapter 1? What takes place in Genesis? Creation. Remember there were seven days of creation, I believe are literal days. Day number one, God creates and he looks back and he goes, this word. God looks back and he goes, this is fine. Day number two, God creates, steps back and he looks at it and he goes, this word. This is fine. Then day three, fine. Day four, fine. Day five, fine. Day six, fine. And day seven, the added emphasis to the beginning of the word is this. Very fine. Now think about the use of the word as God is looking at his creation. 
God is looking at his creation, and clearly this word carries the meaning and is used in other places, talking about physical beauty. And God looks at creation and he goes, man, this is beautiful. If I don't say so myself, I'm rocking, kind of a thing. And he goes, this is just fine. But the word is also used in relation to the aspect where someone looks at it and does not just see the physical characteristics of it, but sees the perception of what is contained within that. God looks at the universe that he has created and he goes, I am telling you this, that is fine, and what's going to take place in that, fine. Now, one of the debates is, is which does this word mean, or does it both? Truth of the matter is, is we don't know. The truth of the matter is, is that in the context, because context is king, and context in this, it could have both implications. There is the implication, potentially, and I'm stating it as such, there is the potential implication that what is being said here is that when they looked at their new baby boy, they looked at this and they said, man, that is one good-looking physical boy. And think about it, in that day when you've been slaves, living in a land of slaves for hundreds of years, when someone gives birth to a very physical, just, mmm, boy, that is not the norm. And it very well could be that when this baby boy is born, uh, Jacobed and uh, Amram look at this baby and go, I am telling you, this baby is one really fine physical specimen. They could also be looking at this. This word potentially contains the meaning that not only is this baby boy something really special, but it very well could be that contained within this boy is the understanding that there is something very special about this boy. And I'm not going where I cannot go because the scripture doesn't tell us for sure. But I am going to next week let you know, I think Moses did know that God had a plan for him that was outside of just willy-nilly trying to figure it out. And I don't know what's happened here, but when mom and dad look at this little boy, they go, that is fine. Starts out really cool. Fine. Okay, and she had him for three months. She hid him for three months. Now, folks, uh, parents, think about hiding a new baby child for three months. Now, it's not like we're living in our homes of today where we've got all these nice, you know, stick homes and insulation and all this kind of stuff. You're living, let's maybe term it more like a campground situation. And you're in a campground situation, and you're trying to hide your baby. And understand, I think sometimes we get the picture that all the Hebrews are up in this land of Goshen up there. They're up in this land of Goshen, and they're just kind of there, and then they all march in to do their job on the beginning of the day during rush hour, and then they all walk out on rush hour at the end of the day. And the Egyptians really don't have much going on. But I'm just telling you that within the context of all this, the Egyptians knew when babies were being born there. And they hid their baby. Imagine hiding a baby in a campground for a period of time. Are you kidding me? What do you do? How do you keep that thing quiet? This is a family job. And within the family job of this is this baby trying to keep him silenced. And in it, I don't know, maybe this baby is crying and mom all of a sudden goes over and, you know, 
pinches Aaron or something to make him cry so it doesn't sound like a baby cry to over we don't know what's taking place did they build a mud room to literally put him in to silence the noise we don't know but they hid him for three months and we cannot walk by that statement and just go oh it was no big deal this was a big deal and why was it a big deal because they ended up here in three months finding out that they couldn't do it anymore take a look they hid him for three months verse three when she could hide him no longer. Please get this. This is not the kind of thing that there is this family who's just like, uh, you know, we'll do whatever. This is the kind of situation where you have a family that's there that is trying to keep this baby separated and quiet and keeping from being killed. And you're doing everything you can, and then it gets to a point where it's beyond your ability to be able to keep him quiet. And it's likely, if this continues on, he is going to be found out, and they're going to kill him. Because everybody knows that as of X date, when Pharaoh put the mandate into place, everybody knew that there should be no more baby boys at that age or younger in the Hebrew camp. And when they know that it's no longer possible to hide him, here's what I'm thinking. What do they do? These are not numbhead people. They are trying to figure out what are the best options. Here's Doug's five best options as a parent. As I go back and I put myself in that time, in this story, I look at this and I go, what could they have done? Here's five options. Number one, they could have been uh, just looked and said, you know what? We serve a big God and God can work a miracle and God's just going to keep their ears silenced from him and we're just going to be able to raise them up and their, and their eyes away and we're going to be able to do it. And can God do that? God could do that. In fact, in Hebrews 11:23, it says of Amram and Jochebed that they were not afraid of the king's edict. I mean, this is one tough couple. They weren't afraid of the king's edict. Yet they were in all of this reality trying to protect their baby boy from death. And they could have sat back and just said, you know what, God's a big God, we're going to keep him at home, we're just going to keep him there, God will take care of the rest. Well, that's one option. Another option is they could have transferred him to a different Hebrew home. They could have given him, you know, hey, would you pass him off to here and hey, or here, kind of like an underground railroad kind of a thing. And got it to a Hebrew family, there's less likely to have happened. But the reality of that is, is that it's probably not going to help because you're in another Hebrew family who they're also being looked at to kill their children if there's young baby boys there. So probably that's not going to work too well. But how about verse, how, not verse, how about number three? And I'm serious about saying this, as hard as it is for me to say it, but listen, I don't want to have them come in and kill my baby boy, so I'm going to. And you may say, you are sick. Listen to me, folks. We have no idea what it's like to be in this kind of setting. And to allow some pagan, hating people to throw your baby in the Nile to be eaten by crocodiles. Or sometimes get to a point where say, maybe I should just suffocate my baby myself. I couldn't do it. I hope I wouldn't do it. And I think in here we see a couple that isn't going to do that. Because there is a bigger God, and there's a better chance. Or number four, get him out. Just get him out of the setting. Is there some way we can get him somewhere else? Well, you've got to understand, they didn't have UPS. They didn't have FedEx. They didn't have this kind of stuff where they could put him in a box with you know, holes punched in it <laughs> and, a, and a whole thing of Cheerios. They didn't have that in that day. And so how are they going to get him out? Well, I don't know, maybe, but there's a chance if we just get him out. Number five could be we put him in the hands of a non-Hebrew individual. What, Egyptian? Or so, some other foreigner? 
I think they clearly go here to options number four and five. I'm just saying, as a parent, as I'm thinking through it, these are the potential options as bad or as possibly good as possible. These are the options that I think I could understand them thinking through. Verse three, when she could hide him no longer, here's what they chose to do. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with butamen and pitch. Okay, we got a picture here. Uh, and this is, um, this is papyrus reed. This is the reeds that are commonly, just naturally grow down along the Nile River. And the terminology here, it's likely talking about papyrus reeds. And what they would do in that day, when they were building boats, they would take a, a tree and, uh, and serve as kind of the center line or with a keel or whatever that is on a boat. And then they would build out with that using papyrus reeds. They would get up to about 10 feet tall, maximum height. They'd build a weave it out. And then they would take bit, bit, bitumen, and, which is tar, and then just slap it outside and inside. So it would have the structure, then they'd put the tar, it would dry, and it'd be waterproof. Well, here, that's what mom and dad end up doing. They end up getting reeds, papyrus reeds, and beginning to form together a little box to be able to put their baby boy in, to float him down the river. Understand the process of making this little box. By the way, the Hebrew terminology in here, referring to this box, it's actually the same Form of the, uh, similar form in the Hebrew word that's used talking about Noah and the ark. Kind of gives you a cool little picture there, doesn't it? One more mini ark about to be built. So what they do is they go and they get the papyrus reeds and they form this box and they do it around. And can you imagine as a dad doing that, knowing what's about to happen? You're building, in many ways, a floating casket, potentially, and you're building this along knowing that you are going to put your little baby boy in there. Are you kidding me? How desperate is that? And they build it and they put the tar around it. They let it die. Listen, this was not a night before project. This took some time. But notice they had considered through the options. Listen, I'm just telling you, they had to consider through the options here of their baby boy. This wasn't like I built an airplane and I don't want it to get ruined. This is a baby boy that they're trying to save. And they put this baby boy in a box that they made. Verse 3 she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. <laughs> Can you imagine that moment? Here you've built this box and, you know, you've built this box and she comes down by the Nile River and she's down by the Nile walking with this box and the baby's laid in it and they come and they put the baby in the river. Now listen, I don't know this for sure, this is all, I'll call it sanctified imagination somewhat. But listen to me, in the story, as God tells about these stories, part of the reason God gave us narratives is we have the ability to relate to them. 
So we don't just walk through and just leave it on the table like that. But think of the situation. Feel the situation. See the situation at hand. And if you have this little box that's a little baby, and you're going down the Nile to put that in the river in an area where you live. Listen, you know this area. You've grown up your whole life in this area. You have your whole ancestry's been in this area. You're in an area. You know the rivers. You know the currents. You know the common activities that take place around here. And if I as a parent am taking my baby in a floating box down to the river, I'm going to try and put him in a spot where there's half a chance. I mean, literally, I'm going to try and do what, wouldn't you? I'm going to try and do what I can. Uh, It's not like, well, we'll throw him in here. God, he's all yours. We'll throw him in. God, he's all yours. I don't, I, just, I don't think that's taking place here because these are people who are thinking through a process here. And as they come along, I just wonder if they knew what was taking place down the river from them. I don't know. But can you imagine the faith that is behind this reality, folks? This is not just another day. This is your baby boy. A fine boy, by the way. And so you put the boy in the river. Moms, grandparents, all of us. Can you imagine that moment? When for three months you've been hiding this baby boy, doing everything you can to care for him. You know that there is a big God. You know that Yahweh exists. And you don't know what's going on with this fine boy. But you put him in the river and let go. And the current begins taking it away. What continues to happen? Verse 4. Love this sister. And his sister, Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Well, one thing, the grammar in this is the kind of thing where this Miriam is not just as this, however old she is, it's not, it's not talking about someone who's sitting and just casually observing like a television show. Or, you know, well, look at the bird floating across the sky. That's not the form that it's talking about. There's an emphasis here that this is an intenseness of what's taking place. Little Miriam is watching her baby brother float down the river. And she's watching. And she stood at a distance to know what would happen to him. Now, was this the kind of thing that she just put herself there and she wanted to know? Was this the kind of thing that mom and dad had talked with her about? Hey, we want for you to follow the baby down the the Nile because mom just can't handle it anymore? Or maybe was there a strategy behind what's going on? I'm going to tell you, I don't know here. But as we look at this, we see a mom putting their baby in the Nile, it's floating off, and sister is now following it along the river. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. Verse 6. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Here is Pharaoh's daughter. Daughter of Pharaoh, who was the one who said, kill the baby boys? 
Pharaoh, dad. And this is his daughter in the Nile. Now, in that day, it was not coming to have a lot of daughters, but here was, here was his daughter in the Nile bathing. Whether it was a religious uh, ceremony thing, bathing situation taking place, which is not uncommon in the day, whether she was just actually bathing, we don't know, but this was down there, and they were there. And again, I have no idea, but I'm telling you what, if I'm a parent, and if I knew there was an ongoing thing to taking place, I'm putting my baby so maybe it floats over by those ladies. Don't know, but could be. And so the baby's over there floating. And so Miriam is watching this baby float, comes down by the queen, or actually not the queen at the time, but the Pharaoh's daughter. Pig looks, they, they go over, pull it out from the reeds, opens it up, and she looks at it, and she took pity on him. The word there is talking compassion. Looks at this baby and just compassion. It, you know, it's the kind of thing where most of us guys love babies when they start getting about two years old. Because that's the time when you can start, like, wrestling, you know, and teaching them how to golf and play baseball stuff. You know, younger than that, it's just so interesting to watch women. Just, oh, man, that is one. Just, it's just there. And I'm so glad for that. And here this girl comes up. Was it, she couldn't have babies? I don't know. But she just looks at this baby and she has immense compassion on this little baby. And she says something. This is one of the Hebrew children. How does she know that? Could be because of physical characteristics. You look and you just go, that's a Hebrew. It's not an Egyptian, just from pure physical characteristics. It could have been that there, like in the movie, there was a little uh, Hebrew cloth in there. That distinguished it. Don't know. It could be that she looks at it and goes, Who else would put their kid in a river and float it away but a Hebrew kid? I mean, because my dad is killing all their babies. Who else would do this? Don't know. But she picks it up and she looks. She says, This is one of the Hebrew children, verse 7. Then his sister, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, What does that tell us? That tells us very close proximity. Okay, so here it was, over here. Jochebed has the baby, puts the baby in the river, floats off. Miriam is watching, kind of down from over, watching and telling, following baby along with what's taking place. Comes over, comes in contact with Pharaoh's daughter and the entourage there. She's watching, she looks over, she sees their opening, and it just so happens to be that she pops into the scene. Also, what this tells us is that baby Moses did not float 10, 20 miles down the river. I mean, a young girl like this could not have walked along 10, 20 miles till this takes place because we're going to find out a little bit she hightails it back home, which couldn't have been 10, 20 miles from the place. But however far this was, it wasn't that far. She followed it, comes in contact with it, and then has a contact with Pharaoh's daughter. And this is a Hebrew slave girl. I mean, like, if I was talking with the vice president or something, I'm, like, shaking in my boots. And here's this little girl. Hi. I just happen to be here. Did mom and dad help her along? I mean, literally, was this a plan? Again, I don't know. But we do know this. There is a big God who is all over this thing. 
And this baby floats in. Pharaoh's daughter picks the baby up, looks, and oh, compassion all over. And sister, look at this rocket girl. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now, did this girl, like, figure this out all on her own? Don't know. If so, big God working in her mind right now. Or was it that they had talked about it before and this was kind of a plan? Again, don't know. It's not about all the don't knows, and we've got to be careful with that. But at the same time, we, we're, we're not that we can't think about some of these options. We don't want to take the story where we want it to go and all that kind of stuff. But I want to tell you the fact that this little girl just shows up right in Pharaoh's daughter, in the daughter of Pharaoh, and says, I'll go find a nurse for you. Just, oh. And then Pharaoh's daughter, verse 8, said to her, Go. It kind of condenses it down. I'm guessing maybe a little more was said there. But go, do that. Listen, folks. She comes in contact with Pharaoh's daughter right here. That's my baby brother. Baby brother. Pharaoh's daughter just got her. She's like, oh, baby. Fine baby. And she's like, hey, maybe I'll go find a nurse for her and take care of the baby. And he says, yeah, you go do that. Can you imagine right right at this moment what she's thinking? Oh, my word, huge God, are you kidding me? Yes, I get really intense about this because I just sit here and I go, folks, can you imagine the joy in this little girl's heart? And she runs home and when she sees mom, I mean, it's not like, hey, mom, we got a deal. You know, you and me. I mean, that's no, I mean, this little girl, is she eight years old? I'm telling, that's why I'm thinking, how old is she to have this kind of interaction with the Pharaoh's daughter? Eight, ten, twelve? And she runs home to mom. You are not going to believe this. I mean, the joy. Uh, there's times when you just see God big. It's just a joy. And you sit back and you go, what a miserable, horrible, terrible setting and situation to be in. And yet if they weren't in that situation, they would not see God so big. And here they are right in the midst of it, being able to be this marvelous situation that's taking place. And so what does she say to mom? So the girl went, called the child mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, so come back. So gets mom, mom and her, whee! <laughs> However they did it. Running back, they come in contact with Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter talks with mom, Jochebed. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away um, and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. You get your baby boy back. And then you are put under the, uh, the authority, the, the protection of the Egyptian pharaoh lineage or framework of the day. You're given protection and you're paid to be a stay-at-home mom. Stay-at-home moms, would you not love that? And here she comes, and she gets her baby. I, I, listen, and then they are, where are, they, are they at home? Did they give them a different home? Don't really know on all that. But here they are home. Can you imagine all of them? Well, Aaron's not getting it. He's three years old. He's over, you know, doing what three-year-olds obnoxiously do. And he's over there. But can you imagine Amram and Jochebed and Miriam sitting around at night? 
Can you believe this? How rock and cool is this? By the way, do not forget that at the same time, there are other moms and dads who love Yahweh and their babies are being murdered. This is not the kind of passage to take and walk away from this and go, you see, if you do what God wants you to do, God's going to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. Bad application of the text. It just so happens to be in this situation, in this home, for whatever divine, sovereign God reason, God is saving this fine boy for a purpose. And all of your neighbors and friends who are in this situation, they are seeing their babies murdered. Wrestle that one. But here we are in this situation where she comes home and brings the baby to the house. And uh, life is quite interesting. So the woman took the child, nursed him, and when the child grew up, we don't know what age that was. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week, actually. We don't know what age. Was he three years old? Was he five years old? Was he eight years old? Was he ten years old? Again, not really sure. But she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Whether I'm I'm one who's a little bit more to where I think he was probably in the seven to eight to nine year old, excuse me, age where he comes back to mom. Mom brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, and you are about to hand your baby boy over that you have put, you have nursed, you have cared, you have brought up, you have taught, and I think we're going to see some of the teaching next week that has been put in his life, and you brought back to this, and you're given over to a pagan. Yahweh-hating family. Listen, part of this is, this is a family that has seen God work in very big, marvelous ways. At least he's alive. So they toss him, or excuse me, they hand him back over to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. There's just real quickly, there's some discussion. Who named him? Was it, was it Jochebed or was it actually Pharaoh's daughter who named him? Because the structure of the sentence is, is we don't quite know exactly for sure. One of the interesting things about it is, is the name he was given, Moshe, is actually an Egyptian name. It's Egyptian, but it sounds like the Hebrew word for draw out. So did an Egyptian uh, adopting mom name her son uh, Moshe, because she drew him out of the water, or did mom, Hebrew mom, name him Moshe, knowing he's going to live in a Hebrew home, and she wants to make sure that he never forgets that God allowed him to be drawn out of the water. Don't know. Either way, big God contained in his name. So where do we take this for us? Exodus 1 and 2, so far, continues to show us about a faithful, redeeming, sovereign God. And friends, we walk away from this just going, you are cool. 
by the way, a couple ironies, and then we'll fill in a couple blanks. A couple ironies is the Pharaoh king is trying to extinguish the Hebrews, and an eternal king is redeeming the Hebrews at the same time. A human king is strategically killing a nation's baby boys, and a divine king is strategically birthing a nation through a baby boy. Pharaoh, in your face. A powerful pharaoh is acting to keep control of his power, and a powerless slave family is acting under God's power. Oh, and by the way, how interesting is it that in this story, three women are the key human characters. Jochebed, Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter. In that day, the women were not counted And God is using the women by a pharaoh kings to, to, to stick back in God's sovereign work to bring back what God wants before a male king. It's just, there's irony all over this story. Well, some closing principles I just want to drive home for us. I will experience life problems. I will experience problems. Listen, you are going to experience problems in life. Here are these folks and living as slaves and they're experiencing problems every day. And a lot of times I just hear about this American Christianity like come to Jesus and you will be wealthy and you will be healthy and you will be prosperous and all your relationships will be taken care of and you will have no problems. Let me tell you something. That is a lie. Listen, life is about problems. Just look at the Bible. Look at the life of Joseph. Talking about problems. Look at the life of Abraham. Look at the life of Job. Look at the life of Jesus, nailed to a cross. Look at the life of Paul, writing the book of Philippians about joy and unity while he's in jail. And I just want to say, for some, you need to hear that you will experience problems in life. <laughs> problems? Okay. Well, duh. Who doesn't have them? And by the way, the whole argument thing of uh, how can a good God allow bad things to happen, that's so reversed in the argument. Let me just make this statement. If a good God was not living today and in control or actively involved in the things of this world, this world would be hell. The fact is, is that the fact is, is that there's any good living being on the earth is a result of a big, gracious God sovereignly showing His grace to everyone. Romans chapter one. And problems are used by God. Secondly, I will not only experience problems, but problems are opportunities because God is in control. 1 Corinthians 11:19 says there must be factions among you speaking Paul to a church in order that there may th those who are committed to truth are going to stand up there must be problems among you within the church it even says so that those who are committed to truth are going to be shown. 1 Peter 1, 2, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And then uh, because of what it does in your own life. Then Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good. What's the good? Verse 29, that we become conformed to be more like Jesus. I just want for you to know, in our American culture, coming to Jesus Christ is not about solving all my problems in life. It is about bringing a 
problem solver into my life and working through life problems for his glory, for my growth, and for ministry to other people. I will experience problems. Problems are opportunities. Real quick here. So under that, I need to consider. Consider. Listen, when things come along, consider what to do. I think we see here in a story a family who is prayerfully and biblically and from a big God view considering through what are the options on the table. Secondly, act. I consider things faithfully, biblically, through the lens of Scripture from an eternal perspective, and then it's act in faith. God, this looks like the best option, and I'm going that direction, and I'm submitting to you, but God, I'm going in this direction. They put their baby there. The Revolutionary War soldiers had a statement that said this, trust in God and make sure that your gunpowder is dry. You get... Trust in God, but also make sure that your gunpowder is dry. Listen, we consider and we act in faith and then to see God. We consider, we act in faith and to act and we see God. Listen, it's, there's a tension. And by the way, you in small groups, James, there's this tension between faith and works that's going on. And we're to be doing our duty as, as people who are given the word of God and the spirit of God and, and, and the ability to think and, and be able to move faithfully through life. And the last thing, I must always remember that God writes the story. And it may mean in the situation when I act faithfully, it's the kind of situation you turn back and you look and you go, God saved my baby boy. Man, big God. It also may mean that I am acting faithfully in life and God took my baby boy. Listen, theologically, is death really that bad? Because this means I'm with the Lord. Is it really that bad? You know what I'm talking about. Yes, the grieving on this side of it, but in many ways, theologically, with the Lord. And so in this, God writes the story. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says, Jacobed took steps to divide, devise the very best plan she could under terrible circumstances, leaving the ultimate results to a sovereign God. Cool story. Cool true story. A redeeming, faithful, sovereign God is at work then, in 1526 B.C., and friends, good news, he is still alive, still on the throne, and still faithful, still redeeming, and still sovereign. And we rejoice in that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are the capital K, King of Kings. Father, we sometimes sit back and we just wonder, what's going on in this world today? And uh, there's a, actually a pretty good answer for that. What's going on in this world today is you are moving the course of time to do your sovereign work. And you are moving the course of time to work in us so that we can bring you glory. 
Father, I think of some right here who may be in these miserable, hard times of life right now. Oh God, would you give them strength? Would you give them an ability to be able to step out of the me world and step into there is a big God on the throne working all things for good. And one day when we stand before you, we will be able to know that everything that took place in life, everything that took place was working your plan. You're that big. Father, may we rest in you because you alone are indeed God. And we are not. In your name we pray. Amen.